Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read our Bibles, may we see the glory of Jesus, of his death and resurrection. And may we give that significance, importance, weight in our lives today and always. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I do want to begin with the thought that this is Transfiguration Sunday and that the glory of God appears in all of its brilliance in the person of Christ Jesus. We are told that his appearance was like lightning. It was overwhelming, it was powerful. And one of the things scripture tells us is that in a relationship with Jesus through reading our Bibles, we can experience that glory in our lives. We can experience the glory of God, the power, the wonder, the awesomeness of God's glory. Now, in the world at this time, some people are getting their significance and their weight through power plays. That's not going to last. You know, you see vapor rising from a winter lake and it just disappears almost as quickly as it appears. And people who seek glory in power, their good looks, their prosperity, their prestige, their pleasure, their religion, that's all gonna go away. The only glory that really lasts is when in Jesus Christ we experience his love, his forgiveness, and his acceptance. Now, Jesus in our text tells us that there are three basic fundamental rules for reading the Bible. And I want to impress upon you is that we don't read the Bible in this way. If we don't read it according to Jesus' instruction, we're not really reading our Bibles. The first one is search the scriptures. Jesus, in a somewhat ironic statement, says to the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. The way the Jewish leaders read the Bible is they're looking for rules. They're looking for biblical principles that will enable them to merit eternal life. They are very much in line with Moses in our Old Testament reading, do these things and you will live. Now, I have to admit, for years, Deuteronomy 30, that Old Testament text that I read, puzzled the dickens out of me. And what puzzled me even more was how could Paul change it? 
What gave him the right to change Moses' majestic words about the law into majestic words about Jesus Christ and his righteousness? Well, here we go. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and you have to remember, Moses has been pastoring this congregation for 40 years. And they are an irksome people. Their hearts are hard, their necks are stiff, and repeatedly he tells them, you're not able to obey God's commands, you just can't do it, it's not in you. It's not part of your DNA. Your human nature finds this impossible. But the key, which people often miss, same chapter, Deuteronomy 30, but verse six. Moses says, because you are disobedient and obstinate, because you are stubborn and stiff-necked, you're gonna be scattered to the nations. That's gonna be God's punishment. But one day, one day God will accomplish a rescue so amazing, so magnificent, so overwhelming that it will change you on the inside. Your hearts will be circumcised so that you will be able to love the Lord your God with your, all your heart and all your soul. So when you read that text in the bulletin, in that light, you realize that Moses is presenting an impossibility because that day hasn't come yet. It's often called the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36 says it this way. One day, God will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. And he will put a new heart and a new spirit within you. He will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He will give you the Holy Spirit who will enable you to obey his commands. Now you know what Paul is doing. Now you can understand how Paul changes the text without changing the intent of the text. The day has come. The new covenant has arrived. Jesus has gone to the cross to cleanse us of our sins and of our idols, whatever they may be, all those things that we use and employ to try to make our lives right and worthwhile and significant. And in Christ Jesus, we have been given a new spirit, a new heart. We, we have had surgery performed. Our heart of stone has been removed and we've received a heart of flesh. And now our obedience to God is not a command, but it's a desire. You know, one of the things that I often ask people when you see this command in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, and it's even very clear in our text where Moses says, I command you, love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
And I've asked countless Christians, what's wrong with that command? Oh, nothing. I said, yeah, there's something really wrong with it. The law doesn't change your heart. You cannot command love. You cannot guilt people into or coerce people into loving God. Only Christ, His death, His love, penetrates and transforms and warms our hearts. I was serving a church, and I won't name names, after I retired, and their practice was that in the school, the parochial school, when or the Sunday school, when the kids got to second grade, they got a Bible as a gift of the congregation. And I remember this so clearly, and I wanted to jump up and say, no, 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 kids, that's not the point. But the person handing out the Bible said, this is God's word. It tells you how you should live. In other words, it's a book of biblical principles and laws for your best life now. If you don't recognize that, that is the name of Joel Osteen's book, bestseller. And in that book, he says, if you do your best for God, he'll do his best for you. Whoopie doo. <laughs> I read my Bible and it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, doesn't say try your best. We've got to learn to read the Bible the way Jesus wants us to read the Bible. Searching and seeking and looking for eternal life. Not because of our performance, but because of what he has done. Let's go to the second point. Let the scriptures search you. I always told my confirmation class, when you study the Bible, the thing you don't realize is the Bible is studying you. It's showing us how selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and how much we're turned in on ourselves. It, it pierces right to the heart and shows us our attitudes and our actions are not in sync with God's wishes, God's desires. If you read the Bible not as a book that is searching and accusing and basically showing you yourself, because the one person, I, I can see all the faults in my spouse. I can't see the faults in myself. I'm blind. I need her to show me those faults. I need another person to say, Dan, you, you really are a self-absorbed jerk, aren't you? <laughs> the Bible needs to show you who you are. Now, 
what the Jewish leaders did and what so many Christian pastors do is what's called law light. Uh, law that doesn't have the weight, the power, the energy. That, and what they do is something like this. They say, you know, the good news is that you can do this thing called life. You can get eternal life. All you have to do is do these things. And, and the good news is you can do it. It's not what the Bible says. Think of Paul in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do it. The, the evil that I don't want to do, I do it. And he's not talking about pre-conversion. He's talking in present tense. When you search yourself and you see yourself, law light is silly. One commentator said, you know, a lot of people in the church worry about cheap grace, that, that we pass out grace like antacid tablets or aspirin, and we don't emphasize that grace means a power that changes your life. That's not the real problem in the church today. That's not the real problem with TV televangelists. The real problem today is cheap law. That I make the law so toothless. Now here's a quote from one commentator. He says that cheap law leads to legalism. A low view of the law always leads to legalism. A high view of the law that God demands perfection always causes me to seek grace. So what is it with these pastors who say, you know, if, if you just try harder, you can do it. Uh, one of the things I really like about the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, I've gone to other churches and almost every week they give me an assignment Okay, if you're a Christian, this is what you got to do. Uh, Tim Keller makes a comment in one of his sermons. He said, if we preach and we don't get to Christ, we just talk about biblical principles and rules that we should live by. He said, that's a synagogue sermon. And it will crush you. It will destroy you. The ultimate, the chief purpose of the Bible and the law is to show me my need, to show me how much I need Christ. That I can't do this thing called life by myself. I can't make my life right, worthwhile and significant without Jesus. And I am so weary of going to churches and hearing the message, Dan, you're really close. Just try a little bit harder this week. Law, light will kill you. It will destroy you. It will grind you into the dust. What's the third point? Let the scriptures lead you to Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus says, you know, I don't have to accuse you. Moses accuses you. That's point number two. But he spoke of me. Jesus is even more radical on Easter afternoon. I imagine it's a beautiful sunny day. Two distraught disciples are walking along the road, going home to Emmaus, and Jesus joins with them, and he says, why so sad? What's the matter? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened, that Jesus of Nazareth, mighty in word and deed, was crucified, and we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel? to free Israel from its Roman cruel and capricious captors? And Jesus says, oh, this isn't in scripture, but this is what he actually said. You silly nillies. <laughs> Don't you know that the Christ had to suffer and die and thus come into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them everything in the, all of the scriptures, all of them, about himself. The real ultimate purpose for reading the Bible is to meet Jesus. To encounter him, to experience his love to stand beneath the cross, to see to what an extent God will go to reclaim us and bring us home. One commentator says that if we ignore Jesus or our focus is not on Jesus, we will always end up with law sermons because that's our human nature years ago I went to a conference and this pastor said something he said now when you write your sermons you've got to have a separate desk you can't write your sermons at your work desk he said the average pastor has 120 hours of work on their desk and guess what your sermon is going to be if you write your sermon at your work desk? You dirty, rotten people, why aren't you helping me? What's wrong with you? Get on the stick. Ship up or shape up. That's backwards, did you notice that? <laughs> I'd like to say I did that on purpose. <laughs> Sermons... Bible classes need to focus on Jesus. There's two ways to read the Bible. You can either see it as the Bible as a book about you and what you have to do, or you can see the Bible as a book about Jesus and what he has done for you. Now, I'd like to conclude in this way and circle back to glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospel of Luke, it's in chapter 9. Towards the end of the chapter, I believe it starts at verse 36. But we're told that when Moses and Elijah appeared, they were 
chatting, they were talking with Jesus. And the English version will say, they were talking about his departure. The word in the Greek is exodus. Do you understand what that's saying? The children of Israel were in slavery for 420 years and along came Moses and through the Passover lamb, they were redeemed. They were bought back from slavery. That's what redeem means. To pay a price to free somebody from sin, the fear of death, the shenanigans of the devil. Jesus' departure, Jesus' exodus is the cross. And he's going to accomplish a redemption so magnificent, so amazing, so overwhelming that it is compared to the singular event of the Old Testament, the Old Testament exodus. But Jesus is going to rescue you not just from cruel taskmasters, a bad social situation. He's going to rescue you from the only things that can truly destroy and kill you, sin, death, and the devil. And when he rescues you, I want to share something with you that I, haven't, I only saw recently. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to guess maybe around verse 16. Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to the praise of God, giving him thanks for everything. So you got that? You got the pattern? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and in this way give thanks to God. There's the pattern. So let's go to Colossians 3, and I'm not even going to guess at the verse. You're just going to have to search for it. And Paul writes these words. He says, Grow experience Christ. And sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God. What has Paul done? He's told us where the glory is. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, as Peter says in his second letter, becoming partakers of the divine nature, receiving the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? When you talk about Jesus, when you read about Jesus, when you hear about Jesus. It's so clever. Be filled with the Holy Spirit is only accomplished as you become better acquainted with and more appreciative of, more empowered, more excited by what Jesus has done. The glory is found in Jesus. In reading your Bibles, in reading them according to the direction, the instruction of Jesus himself. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would warm our hearts, transform our lives as we read our Bibles and we we search, we seek for real life, eternal life, significant life, life that is worthwhile. And we discover that we don't deserve it. Even with our best efforts, we're not qualified to receive life only through what Jesus has done. Is that life ours now and forever? Help us to get into our Bibles and to meet him and to rejoice in him. We ask in his name, amen.